Well, amen. Good morning, Salem. Well, it's great to be here with you guys uh, this morning. Welcome to all of you guys who are joining us uh, in person. Uh, if you're joining us uh, online from home or from the lake, we're glad that you guys are, are joining us in uh, from there. So uh, I wanted to extend my welcome as well, just as a happy Father's Day uh, to each of you dads uh, out there. This last week, uh, my wife, uh, Nikki, and daughter Eden were gone for the entire week. And, uh, and so they rolled back into town uh, yesterday afternoon. And uh, with Eden being three years old, I didn't know uh, what the reception was going to be. <laughs> You know, I kind of thought that maybe it'd be like, cool, we're home, daddy's there, you know, whatever. And uh, to my delight, uh, as I opened the door, her arms threw up in her, in her little uh, car seat and just, just like squealed. <laughs> it was awesome. It was so good. And, uh, and, and I had the next two hours with her before she had to go to bed. And, and uh, I, I mean, probably 20 times she just said, daddy, I missed you this week. So precious. Wow. It's so, so good. There's few things in life that are as precious and as rewarding as being a dad. And so we want to celebrate with you guys who are dads. Uh, but we uh, also know uh, that uh, Father's Day can be really hard. Uh, so maybe you're no longer a father. Um, or maybe uh, you've always wanted to be a dad and you've never had the opportunity or privilege. And if so, can I, can I invite you to come talk to me afterwards? Because I understand how hard uh, that, that desire can be uh, going through years of infertility. And so um, I just love to treat you to a lunch or a coffee and, and hear your story on me um, and uh, just to listen and, and pray with you and, and walk in that journey uh, with you. So uh, while Nikki and Eden uh, were gone, uh, the first day, and maybe you've had this happen, uh, family members leave and you go, wow, this is really, really nice. <laughs> and then two days later, you're like, wow, this is the worst. <laughs> they even took the dog. So, uh, you know... So for me, like I have like my puppy Kenai and like we snuggle and, and I rub her belly and, and pluck hair out of her because she's a husky and, and that's cathartic for me and I didn't have that. <laughs> so they were gone for a whole week uh, and, uh, and the house was like turned from chaos into silence and, and it was really hard. It was very, very lonely for those first couple of days and so what did I do? I started filling it with, with, with people and just started bringing in relationships and engaging with people and it was an awesome week of of community uh, for me, and uh, at the end of the week, I got the privilege of um, of going fishing with one Mr. Darren Callad, and uh, and we spent six hours together. I'm not sure how he put up with me. Uh, we caught two fish, uh, a northern, uh, a, a northern, and uh, and a crappie, and uh, but it was awesome. It didn't matter what we did um, or how many fish we caught because it was all about the relationship. It was it was just so fueling. Uh, and we got to hear, I got to hear stories from him about being a dad and what are some of his favorite memories as being a dad and from his kids. And we talked about baseball and softball and food and eating. And, and really, in the end, we just, we, like as time wears on, you begin to talk about real life and struggles and the hardships. And you begin to trust each other. And it was so rewarding. It was so, so good. We are longing for, we are wired for, and we long for community. And that's what this series is really all about. We're in this series called uh, Risking Church. And uh, that sub, subtitle is Why Choosing to be Fully Known is Worth 
the risk. And it is a choice. It's a choice that we all have to make. And we choose to the degree in which we are known, whether we hold back if we're withholding or if we are vulnerable and authentic and share, you know, um, to the level where we can be fully known um, and that we would be fully loved by others, right? That's the hope and that's, that's, the, that's the desire. And so for us, um, we, we're breaking this series uh, for the course of the summer into, into two parts. And the second part will be really, um, what does intentional community really look like? And then kind of the rubber meets the road and we start talking through some of those things. But this first portion, we're talking about where does intentional community really begin? Like, where does it come from, right? That's really where we are, are starting with is these, these foundational elements. And so if I switch back to um, our trusty board over here, and I'll just wait to make sure we're up here. Cool. All right. So if you remember, this is our story. This is the whole Bible story. This is the lens in which we see uh, life. Because there's a chronology to life. There's a chronology to God's story. And it begins with creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. And we'll talk about that in just, in just a second. Um, but if you remember, like, if we, we have to, like, put ourselves or pull ourselves out of this timeline and remember um, that the first thing that we learn about intentional community, um, and really as we think about the story, is that it begins with this one character, and this character, uh, and his name is God, right? Uh, Yahweh um, is, is the name of, of God. And so we, we know that Scripture teaches that God is, he is one. He is, he is one. And yet somehow, um, this is also the way that Scripture teaches it, right, is that he is this combination, really, of these three equal, like these co-equal, co-divine, eternal persons in God the Father, in God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, when we talk about where does intentional community begin, it begins before our story ever even begins. It begins with God. And as we look at God, we go, this is absolutely, like, like <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so hard to think about, right? And if you think about this too long, it will, it will make your brain hurt, <laughs> And if you add to that that he has existed for all of time, he's eternal, like, you're just going to, like, lay awake at night. But here's the deal. Like, we would much rather and we would much prefer to worship a God who is far more incredible and amazing, right, than someone who is simple uh, and someone we could figure out. And so we look at this and we go, wow, he is just absolutely incredible. This is the God that we worship, right? This is the, this is the God of the Bible. It's absolutely fa fascinating. And then we come over here, and then this is where our story kind of comes in, right? As we enter into the story, God creates everything, and this is where uh, the world is, everything is in working order, it's in right condition, the way it ought to be. And then just a few chapters later, uh, we get to Genesis 3, which we put in, in like this parentheses, the fall. And this is Christian, kind of Christian language, uh, which refers to the moment in which sin enters into uh, the world, right? And when sin enters into the world, it brings not only chaos and brokenness and destruction, it ultimately brings death. It brings death. And so as a result of the fall, right, there is now like no life on the tree. And so for us as human beings, in our brokenness with God, in our brokenness with others, our propensity, our disposition now is to take all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our grossness and we want to, we want to sit back in the shadows. 
right? You come all the way back here. And we want to sit back here. And this is a safe place for us because no one knows what's truly going on inside of me, right? And so when people come to us and they point out things in our life or when, when other people are vulnerable in their mess and it hits a little too close for home, we have this tendency to swat it away uh, because we want to deflect. And then we pick it up and we throw it back at people and we're like, but this isn't about me. What about you and you and you and you? And we blame and we hurt, right? And that's the result of the fall. But also because we are made in the image of God, simultaneously what we've talked about is at the same time we want to step forward into the light because we, we are designed in the image of God. And so we long to be fully known and fully loved in the same way that God is within the Trinity, right? And so this is, this is the tension here for people. And for thousands of years, people existed in this tension um, of, of like stepping back but wanting to step forward but never having a viable solution to the brokenness and to the chaos and to the death that was in the world and in, in our lives, the very mess that's in our lives. And so for thousands of years, until Jesus came, right? And Jesus enters into the world, and John 1 describes it this way. It says that, that he came down, he was full of what? Grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. And so he enters into the story. But here's what's, here's what's interesting about this, is that when we hear the words grace and truth, we have this tendency to think about these theological concepts, like these ideas that, that are true and that, that somehow define the universe and the world in which we live in. And that's very much accurate of who God is in concept. But grace and truth are, are more than just ideas. They're actually these communities because that's who God is. Right, it stems from that. And so when we invite people into grace and truth, guess what we're doing? We're inviting people into a community or a relationship of grace and truth. And that's what Jesus does. And if you remember from last week, that's what he does with Peter. Peter, in all of his brokenness and all of his mess and all of his denial of his very best friend, and what does Jesus do? He invites him into a community of grace, right? And the, way, the reason why he can do that uh, is because of this, this big word that the Bible uses, and I'm not going to write it out because it's too far to do backwards. So uh, it's the word justification. To be justified or justification is this theological truth in the Bible that, that if I come to Jesus in faith, that I can be declared righteous before God, that I can have God's righteousness given to me and I'm no longer guilty of sin, but that I am justified by God. And so when Jesus looks at Peter, what he's doing is saying, I understand you, but because of my work on the cross in my death and resurrection, guess what? You can be declared righteous. And so he has this, this is a safe place. This is a very safe place. And this can never be taken from you. At least that's my belief. This cannot be taken from you. And so it's such a safe place to know that no matter the brokenness, no matter the mess, I am still declared righteous before God. And that's incredible. But Jesus also has this vision for Peter that points him to the end of the story. He has a vision for what we as humans could be, not just who we are. It's this vision of becoming more and more like Jesus, like himself. And so, and so um, 
The Bible uses another word for this, and it's the word glorification, right? And so glorification is this. It's when not only do I have a new identity, it's now I have a new identity combined with a new body. And when I have this new body, this is where the the whole story enters into eternity, and I will live in this new body with a new identity forever, right? And that's glorification. But here's this question, is that there's something that happens in the middle, right? Because we, even though we have this safe place and there's this vision of who we want to be, there's these things that are connected right here. And we know that becoming more and more like Jesus isn't a static movement. It requires change and transformation. And so what the Bible uses to talk about this is actually is the word sanctification, And so there's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And sanctification is when we are being refined or being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning is that we are going to uh, wrestle with this relationship uh, around grace and works because we need to grow. In order for us to grow into Christ-likeness through the work of the Holy Spirit, we need to understand what the true gospel is and how to practice it, what the true gospel is, not the fake gospel. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, okay? All right, so if you've got a Bible, uh, open up to uh, the book uh, of Galatians. Galatians is is in the New Testament. It's almost at the very end uh, of your Bible, Uh, and so you flip through, and if you're flipping, you hit 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Galatians is kind of right behind that, and uh, if you miss it or skip it and you keep flipping, uh, no worries. You just go to your index in the front of your Bible. Uh, and it will tell you right where it is. And so we'll be in Galatians 3. Uh, but I want to show you this picture just to provide some context uh, for the story that we're kind of jumping into. Um, Galatia is that little circled ring right there. It's a, it's a pretty large uh, province. And you can see its relationship to Rome on the left in Italy there and down Jerusalem on the right side of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and so it's in the northern region. And uh, Galatia is known uh, primarily... One of the things it's known for is the fact that it's kind of right along some popular roads. And so Galatians were were very deep thinkers uh, and really loved persuasive teaching, what we might call rhetoric. And so what they would do is that these new teachers would come into the city, whatever city they were in, these new teachers would come in bearing this new philosophy or whatever it is, and they would teach it. And these people would flock to new teachers. And they go, wow, that's really, really good. It's really good. I like that. I believe in that. But then a week later, a new teacher would come. Or a month later, a new teacher would come. And they go, wow, that's really good. I believe in that. And so they're known for, for switching back and forth. And really what they end up doing is they become this syncretistic group of people, which means that they, that they collect pieces from all different teachings, and they're building their own teaching. And the problem is, is at the end of the day, they have all of these competing truth claims in their life, because that can't be true alongside of that alongside of that, alongside of that. And even Paul addresses this at the very beginning of his gospel. He says, I am so astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel that I taught to you. You see, this is the problem, is that they're moving away from the true gospel to a false false gospel. And so what, G, what Paul wants to do is he says, man, I am concerned for you that you know what the true gospel is and we need to protect it from the false gospel. 
Okay? So that's what he's going to do. Uh, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Here we start in verse 1. Here's what he starts with. This is, um, this is challenging. Uh, he says, O foolish Galatians! Exclamation point. That's the start of his sentence. How would you, how would you like to be called foolish? It's not, it's not a really good word, right? Uh, the word here uh, for foolish means uh, that you have failed to comprehend something that is basic and intuitive. It's as low as the word of, of, as witless. You witless person, right? You go foolish. Maybe foolish I could take, but if somebody said you're witless, how would you respond? Wow, that's hard. You see, Paul is he's beginning a rebuke here because he's so adamantly concerned with the false gospel that they're believing. He needs them to understand the true gospel. So he continues. He asks this question. He says, who has bewitched you? And that word bewitched is a strange word in the English, right? Like, we wouldn't expect that to find that. Like, maybe we find that in Harry Potter. But in the New Testament, that's a weird word. And if you've ever read any articles, uh, like, on missions or missiology, uh, you might find this reference to what's called the evil eye. The evil eye. Has anybody ever heard this, the evil eye? Yeah, so it's, it's this thing. It's about, it's about exerting. You're trying to exert evil influence through your eye on somebody else. You're projecting vindicative, bitter, judgmental, um, menacing things, really evil things onto somebody else. And it's not a look uh, of just like disapproval, like, wow, Seth, when you did that, that was not smart. <laughs> right? It's not that look. I know that look well. <laughs> No, the look is, it's evil, it's baleful, it's menacing, vindictive, right? And that's what these people are entering into. And so the literal meaning could almost be like you're under a curse. Like these people are entering in into this new Gentile, Christian Gentile community, and it's like they pull out their wand and put you under a curse. Not that that's how that works, but there's evil influence, now, figuratively, it just simply means that you've been confused. You've been confused by something. Like a little child, you have been deceived. And the reality is that it's probably a combination, that there is evil at play here, right? Because Satan does not want us to understand the true gospel. He really doesn't. He wants us to understand a false gospel. And so there's evil influence, but there's also a witless portion on our end sometimes where we're not using our brains and we become deceived like children. And so you begin to ask this question, like, why, why are these people, who are these people and what are they doing? Um, and this is not on the slides, but if you look back into chapter 2, verse uh, 4 in your, in your Bibles, you would see this. It says, this is crazy. This is first first um, century Christian espionage, <laughs> okay? This is, this is strange. It says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. So there's these people who have entered into the community who are actually false, the false brothers. They're not a real part of the community. They've been planted in this new community of Christians, and they're actually sent there to spy. Have you heard this before? Like, they're spying out the Christian community. He says they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. You see, there's something so fundamentally, intrinsically powerful about the freedom and liberty that the true gospel brings that people who on the outside go, wow, that's too good to be true. And I'm envious of that. And so here's what I'm going to do. Here's my motive. I'm going to slip in, and here's what they say. They slip in so that they might bring us into slavery. 
So these people are coming in and they're bringing the law and circumcision with them. They're bringing all the Old Testament rules and they're trying to say that the gospel is not enough. The true gospel isn't real. The true gospel is actually grace and works. It's circumcision. You have to adhere to the Old Testament law in order for this to actually be real, right? In order to be real. That's their motive. And really, he's, he's saying that it's any way of doing, any way of working or earning out your, your, your salvation. So then he goes on, and he says in this question at the end of chapter 3, verse 1, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, let me ask you a question. Were the Galatians present at the cross when Jesus died? No. Or at least most likely not. They're in a whole other province. They, don't, they didn't see that. So what is it that Paul is actually saying? What is he referring to? How is it that he can say that, that you know that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? There's two things that Paul is referring to. One is that when in that city and in that culture, uh, a public or authoritative magistrate would have come to the forefront and called like this little town thing, and he would have announced in a very authoritative way, by the way, this guy Jesus in Rome, he was crucified. And so it's not like this rumor floating through the wind that people hear. It's very authoritative. And so they would have heard this and known that this is real. This is true. Okay? But the second thing is this, is that Paul is also, I think, saying is that my writings, he says, my writings as a writer, I use very vivid um, and, and very graphic language and pictures to help you understand the, the nature and the reality of Jesus' crucifixion. So even though you weren't there, you know that he was crucified. It's as if you've seen it with your very own eyes. And this is relevant for us because if that's true, then you and I, we were not there to watch Jesus be crucified either, right? And so that all of a sudden, we are in the same boat. We have not seen that. And what he says is that through the teachings of the gospel, through the teachings of, of the Bible, guess what? It's as if you were there. You publicly saw him portrayed as crucified. Like we can't escape that reality. That's a truth for us. And so then Paul, he goes on and he asks them this question coming out of this. Right? He continues, he's building his argument, and he says, let me ask you only this, okay? If I could ask you one question, you ever play this? Like 20 questions, this is not 20 questions. He's starting with one question. If I could ask you one question, only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the, works, uh, the Spirit by works of the law or through by faith? This is a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. We should know the answer. But his people that he's writing to have, have stumbled into this fundamental error. That even though they know what's right, even though they know what's true, they are now living out a, an entirely different gospel. Right? And so he's trying to help them understand this. And as he's doing it, he assumes a fundamental piece of his theology that's central to his theology. And it's this. It's that when you become a new Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. 
And if you remember from last week, we looked at Ezekiel 36, and in that we saw that God said there will come a time, we know that points to Jesus, when he will remove our heart of stone and he will give us a heart of flesh. And it's in that moment that we are reborn or regenerated, and that is a work that is only done by the Holy Spirit. It's not done by us. It's a work that is done. We are transformed, regenerated, and reborn by the work, the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and as a result of that, we also receive uh, the Holy Spirit. And so for us as Christians, we have this internal sense that something is new and different about our lives. Because even though we have mess and junk and all this grossness, we can identify that there is an inner sense in which we know that we're not the same person, Right? We know that we're not the old creation. We are now a new creation. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that Holy Spirit actually proves to transform us and sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. And it's the work of the Spirit as he's continuing to do this in our lives that produces what's later seen in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, if you have any of those things, that is an external sign, this outworking, outworking of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so his, his question is fundamental then, did you receive all of that good stuff by stuff that you worked on and brought into your life, or is that the work of the Spirit? And so we come back to you. We come back to our, our trusty board here. And so he's, here's what he's doing. He's, he's setting up this process for us, right? He looks at justification. He says, right, this we know is by faith, okay? We are justified by faith alone, not by works so that no man may boast, okay? So we're justified by faith. Glorification, also by faith. But then what he's posing is this question in here. Are you being sanctified by faith or are you being sanctified by works? Right? It's that. That's what he's saying. Are you sanctified by faith or are you sanctified by works? And so he goes on and he starts. And this is where he, he comes to kind of this climax in, in, his, in his argument here in chapter three, or chapter 3, verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? There's that word again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is the false gospel that he's pointing to. He says that the word begun is this idea of the, the inauguration of your Christian life. When you came to Christ by faith and you received the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith, right? When you had that and you received the Holy Spirit, you were regenerated and reborn and a new life began. You're no longer the old identity. You are now the new identity. But what was given to you by faith, are you now perfecting? Are you becoming more like Jesus because you work really hard? That's his question. Are you so foolish to think that you can perfect and complete what only the Spirit started that you could do on your own? That's what he's asking. Do you get that? That's what he's posing in this, in this verse 3. And so for us then, we have to ask this question. As we look at Paul, we say, Paul, what, what's the true gospel? Paul, help us understand what is the true gospel. So if we come back to... We come back to this, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do option, option one. 
This is, this is one option for the gospel, okay? The good news. Uh, gospel just means good news uh, in Greek, uh, and it really just means uh, it's in reference to the good news of Jesus, like the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. That is the gospel, okay? So the first, the first option for the gospel is this, okay? Gr- the green means grace, so we're starting at the moment of faith, regener- or regeneration and redemption. We're moving towards cons- uh, consummation, towards the end of the story. Um, and we have this grace line. But here's what these people who entered into the Jewish world, into the, or into the Gentile world, were saying is that it's not just grace, it's grace plus. And I'm going to make a big plus sign right here. It's grace plus this. Now, in their context, they're talking about circumcision primarily. But Paul renders this, and he talks about anything, anything that you would do to add on to this grace and faith, right? By grace through faith, right? And so for them, it was circumcision. But maybe for us, it's everything in life is by grace, except you have to go to church, or everything except you have to read your Bible. Or everything except you need to stop watching pornography. Or everything except whatever it is, fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, it becomes this faith plus type of thing. And we go, man, that's, there's, there's something wrong with this. And that's, Paul points this out later in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, if you're going to adhere to one element of the law, say circumcision, if you're going to adhere to one element, guess what? You are liable for every single law. And that's not attainable. That's impossible. That's impossible, right? And so all of a sudden, we begin to see that something like this fractures the freedom and the liberty that we have in Jesus. Because all of a sudden, it says that grace covers everything except that. And guess what? When we know that what that, that is in our life, all of a sudden, it's different for every person, but we feel the weight and the burden, and we go, gosh, God's grace is good, but it's not that great, right? That's option, that's option one, okay? Um, option two, option two um, is what I'm going to call the, the gospel of subtraction, okay? Uh, and so really, it's like this. We got all this orange. This is all works, and from the moment that I become a Christian, I begin to work and work and work and work and work and work and work, and I do all of this stuff to work. But when I get to the end and I finish my life, this is how God's grace works, is that he enters in and he finds those areas where I just totally blew it, right? Or even just in small ways. And we go, that's where he enters in, and he just covers those things. But all of a sudden, we begin to see that this doesn't work either, because this is a combination of God's grace plus what? My works. It's just a different version, right? And it's not the way that it's supposed to be, okay? And the last one, option three, and I'm going to call this a fill in the blank, okay? So just imagine that we have all of these different areas in life, and some of these areas we do better at than others, uh, and we work really hard, and maybe in some of these areas, like you try once, and you're like, man, this is like my, this is my Achilles heel, Right, this is my, the thorn in my side, is that I can never seem to do good in this area. But I can do good in this area. And so what we think then is that in some way, shape, or form, God's grace then backfills or fills in the blank or fills in these gaps all the way. And so we think, gosh, we're covered when we have grace. But again, we look at this and we go, this will not work. 
Why? This is a false gospel. Every single one of these is a false gospel because it is a combination of grace and works. And yet, here's what I would argue. As we look at this, we know that this isn't true. And yet I would argue that most of us on a daily basis end up living by one of these three. And we miss the true gospel, and we miss the liberty and freedom that we're supposed to have in Jesus, and we end up living out something in this faith plus idea. And so here's my question, and this is a powerful question, and if you go, man, I'm trying to figure out if I'm in, in this one of these categories, okay? I'm gonna ask you a question. I don't ask this very often because I know that it's kind of weird and it's maybe a little painful, but I want you to think back in your life and remember the moment, one moment in your life where you fell spiritually the hardest. You don't need to tell anybody. We're not going to take a poll and raise your hands and say, who did that? <laughs> What's your deepest, darkest sin and why won't you stop? <laughs> not going to ask that. But what is it for you? What was a moment that you fell harder than any other moment? Because remember the guilt and the shame and the brokenness and the fear and the hiding that you felt in that moment. Now, let's just imagine, let's just assume that 30 seconds, two minutes, whatever, after you fall, God gives you a perfect opportunity to share the gospel with someone who desperately needs it. Here's my question. Could you share the gospel with full confidence, without any wavering, this is who God is, and this is who I am in light of Christ? And if you say yes, then great. But most of us, myself included, will oftentimes say no because we feel the fear and the guilt and the shame of what we've done. But the true gospel says no matter the sin, no matter how many times, God's grace still covers it. And that's fundamentally important to the new gospel. And yet we practically live this out. I read a book once in college called The Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges. And the, thing, the whole premise of the book is every single morning, wake up, reteach yourself the gospel. Because if you don't, you will end up living daily like this. Because even though we know what's true up here, we don't do it out here. And we get caught living in a false gospel with these competing truth claims in our lives. And we ask this question, why do we do this? Why is it that we end up living life by, like, according to one of these three things? Why do we end up doing that? Well, the, the idea, I think, is in this idea of bankruptcy. And so let me just give you this example, okay, the idea of bankruptcy. Let's just assume so that you have some money. So yesterday, or a couple days ago, I went disc golfing uh, with some friends. And uh, when I pulled out my disc golf bag, I found $7. <laughs> I was like, woo, yay, $7. Let's just imagine that $7 is all that you have, nothing more, $7. Let's just imagine that then the bank comes to you, the loan lender, and says, Seth, you owe me $1 million. What do you do? Well, I have $7. <laughs> I have $7. So what you can do is you can give them the $7, and then what you do? You still owe them 980, 93,000, whatever it is, right? Right, all those, whatever, 99, 99, 97. You could go and you could say, I'm going to declare temporary bankruptcy in the business world. 
If you, de- if you declare temporary bankruptcy, you say, here's what I have, and then I will work my tail off to fix the ship while it's sinking, and I will make back and earn everything that I can, and when I do, guess what? I will give it back to you. That's temporary bankruptcy. Or you, uh, you could declare permanent bankruptcy, right? You could declare permanent bankruptcy, but permanent bankruptcy is like, gosh, there's no hope. The, the ship is not sinking. The, the ship is already sunk. And you're doggy paddling in the water and you don't even know it. You're like, where'd my ship go? Right, it's gone. Right? That's permanent bankruptcy. Here's the deal, though, with permanent bankruptcy. This is hard. Like, you think about it in the business world, right? Even though your debts may be canceled, even if you owe $999,000, whatever it is, and if you declare permanent bankruptcy, you will no longer have those debts against you. They're canceled. And the loan lenders, they will stop coming. But guess what? the debt was never actually paid for. It's still there. It's just not held accountable for it. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, so when we think about bankruptcy, there's this negative association with it. It's it's so hard because it's embarrassing. It's this utter defeat, whether it's temporary or permanent bankruptcy. I can't buy anything. I can't do anything. And it's it's really, really hard. What if we were to, to, to switch this idea of bankruptcy into the spiritual sense? Because I'm convinced that many of us as Christians live by one of these three things because what we're doing is we're declaring temporary bankruptcy. Is that we don't understand that I am permanently uh, defeated. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can bring to the table. And so if I'm temporary bankrupt, then all of a sudden what Christ accomplished on the cross, I'm justified by faith, but then I get into into the real world and I work and I work and I work and it becomes a performance treadmill. Guess what? Guess where treadmills go? Nowhere. If you go to the gym, um, and I don't do this very often because I don't run on treadmills or really go to the gym, Um, but if you look down, if you're running on the treadmill and you see somebody else on the other side running on the treadmill, oftentimes we look at that person and we go, gosh, I wish I was more like them. And they're looking at you going, I wish I was more like them. And so then it becomes this treadmill, this battle of treadmills. As long as I can outpace and out do that person over there, it's this keeping up with the Joneses type of a thing, and it's sweaty, it's exhausting, and, it, and you end up right where you started, right? That's, that's temporary bankruptcy in the spiritual world. But the permanent bankruptcy is, is a different thing, right? Permanent bankruptcy is where we admit that our ship is already sunk, and there's nothing that we can do to fix it. And we hesitate to do this, because when we do this, we know that we have no more bargaining chips with God. You see, if I have $7, it doesn't matter if I have $7 or a dollar, if I have $900,000, I look at that debt. If I can't pay it, I go, but at least I have $7. Guess what I'm doing? This right here, fill in the blank. Because that's my bargaining chip with God, right? And in the spiritual world, In order to understand the true gospel and the way that Jesus designed it with all of its freedom and all of its liberty, you have to admit permanent bankruptcy. Look at this this verse um, uh, in, in Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah 64. It says, we all have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We just stop there. Let's just assume that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Everything that you do, good, is is polluted. Okay? It's like a dirty garment. It's like a dirty rag. Does this option work? No. Does this option work? No. Does this option work? No. 
None of them work because we are totally depraved. In Romans 3, he says, there's no one who does good. All of our throats are like an open grave. What a weird, you know, metaphor, right? Like every, nobody does good, and this is the world that we live in. But here's the thing. I want to I show you. Uh, in the business world, when it comes to permanent bankruptcy, and we declare this, and we look at this in light of Jesus, in the business world, our debts are never actually paid for. But in the spiritual world, your debts are paid for by Jesus. Not only are they canceled, but they are paid for in Jesus. And in the business world, when you go, you can actually go into debt again. Right? There's no guarantee that you won't go into debt again. But in the Christian world, in the spiritual world, there's no possibility of you ever going into debt again. It's permanent for all time. That is the grace that we live in. And we like to hold this slate of all the things that we do that we need to make up for Jesus and just like, hey, can I see what you're writing? Cool, thanks. Done. No more. That's not the way that the gospel works. There is no performance treadmill. And so when we look at this, we come back to this. You see, the gospel is not the good news of faith plus. It's not the good news of of faith minus these areas that I broke down. And it's not the gospel of fill in the blank. The reality is, is is that option four, this is where it is, is that we begin. And we work our way, and we see that this all grace, the green, green for grace, it's all about grace from justification to sanctification and glorification. Everything in this life and how I'm transformed and made like into likeness of Jesus is all an act of faith by grace. It has nothing to do with my works in that way. It has nothing to do with my salvation in that sense. And so I'm going to put a line here. And then you go, well, Seth, aren't works important? Absolutely, works are important, but they're on a totally different plane over here. They are separate from that grace. Works are very much important, um, but they are mutually exclusive when it comes to salvation and when it comes to my growth in that way, right? So God's grace says on every, this is a tension in my life, I will always have to be trusting on a daily basis who God says I am, every day. This is who God says I am every day, every day, every day. At the same time, the tension is that I'm always going to have sin in my life that I'm working on. There's always going to be sin in my life that I'm working on. And so how do we understand this tension? I want you to check out this this big idea as we begin to wrap up here. Um, Here's the tension. Is that we need to learn to be content with being a sinner. Because this side of heaven, we will never not be a sinner. So you have to learn to accept that. You are broken, and you will always have mess in your life. But here's the deal, but never be content with your sin. And here's my point. When you think about it from this perspective, if you start with this line in your life, if you start with works, 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 if you start with this line, you will never experience the freedom of this. But if you start with the freedom and the liberty of the grace that God gives you, you will experience unparalleled transformation and growth in this, in your life. That is the true gospel, is that it's all about grace. I'm going to give you this last verse in Galatians 3 uh, with Philippians 1. This is the key verse from earlier. How are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Those words, begun and perfected, same words we find in the same pattern in Philippians 1.6, which is such a familiar verse to all of us, 
for many of us. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Is that about me? No. That's God. It's God's work. And that's the gospel. That's grace. Hey, I want to invite the worship team uh, up, and we're going to sing a song. Um, but as they come, uh, I want to just share these questions with you as you wrestle through these. Cave. Uh, here at Salem, we like to, to talk about Cave Table Road. Cave is, is my authentic um, conversation with God when I get time with him. And so this week, I, didn't, I challenge you to ask God in your relationship, as you talk with him, where have, where have I grown content in my sin? That's a powerful spot. Right? That's, a, that's a good spot to find ourselves and to really ask him. Uh, the second question, uh, table, which line do I start with in my life? As you talk to other people around you, ask them to speak into this. Which one do you typically lean into? But actually, I would even change that question kind of on the fly. I would say, ask yourself this question or ask the table, ask your people this question. Which of these gospels am I believing in? Have a discussion about that. Which of these gospels? And the last one is this, is the road. What am I multiplying? When I enter into the world where I meet people on the road, am I giving them a gospel of grace or a gospel of works? It's a good question. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we, as we wrap up our time this morning, Lord, this, this image in my mind, this relationship between grace and works. And so oftentimes as Christians, uh, God, we find ourselves buying into and living out the syncretistic faith where we know what the real gospel is and yet we end up living these false gospels. We, we can feel ourselves running on the treadmill and we know that we're just sweaty. We know that we're working harder and harder and harder and yet we feel like we're making it nowhere. And so God, Lord, would you give us the ability uh, to see that it is by grace alone that we we are transformed into you uh, by grace through faith. That is the true gospel. And may you give us and grant us the opportunity to experience a freedom uh, and a liberty that we have never experienced before uh, in our lives. And so, Lord, Lord, I just ask, Lord, would you help us as a people, as a body of Christians, uh, to learn to be content uh, with being a sinner, but never, ever being content with our sin. And we give you all glory and grace. Amen.